0: I'm excited to begin this new quarter of study, uh, and I love the topic that, that I'll be covering. We're going to be studying the life of Jesus. And before we get started, there's a few things I, I want to go over with you, just a, a few. I want to tell you a little bit about what this study will cover and that sort of thing, so that you're on the same page with me as we move forward. But we're going to be studying the life of Jesus, and I want you to understand, this. I consider this to be a comprehensive study. In other words, uh, the goal of this study is going to be to examine as much of Jesus' life as possible. Now, you might be thinking, well, we do quarters here, so that's 13 weeks. How much of Jesus' life can you cover in 13 weeks? Well, I've already asked for three quarters. So this subject is going to be taught in here. This quarter, winter quarter, and spring quarter, and I'm going to do my best to finish it by then. But if you ask any of the individuals in this room who attended my Wednesday morning Bible class, they'll tell you I can't. So I love to study the life of Jesus. I love to go into depth in the life of Jesus. So I intend to do that, and we'll cover it as long as I'm allowed to be up here covering it. Um, And so I I want you to know that in advance. If you're hoping to just get a good overview of the life of Jesus in 13 weeks, that's not going to happen. Uh, We're going to be taking our time going through this. I also want you to know that as I teach the life of Jesus, I'm going to be very event-oriented in my teaching. And what I mean by that is I'm going to be focused on the activities and the events that take place in the life of Jesus, more so than the teaching that Jesus presents. Now, we will address some of his sermons or some of his specific teachings as they are found in conjunction with specific events or, or as they contribute to helping us understand why something happens or, or what's going on in a particular uh, scenario in the life of Jesus. But my focus is not going to be spent examining his sermons and examining his parables and things like that. I'm focused particularly the events in his life. So this study will be very event-oriented. And I'm going to do my best to make this a chronological study. Our, our study of the life of Jesus will attempt to, to work its way in order from his birth to his ascension. And uh, we're going to do the best we can with that. Um there are moments when you look at the Gospels where, you're, where you're, you can't figure out what the correct order should be because Matthew does it one way, and Luke does it another way, and we don't know what John's doing over there. But we're going to try to be as chronological as we can. There are going to be times where I'm going to have to, to kind of do my best guesstimate of what takes place after what. Uh, just so you know, I, when it comes to the chronology of Jesus' life, I lean heavily towards Luke and then to Mark. Um, mainly because I find John is a very theologically driven gospel. Uh, John is very intentional and selective about what he presents and what he doesn't, because he's got a, an objective to his gospel, and that's just to convince people that Jesus is the Son of God. So he has less material in his gospel in the early parts of Jesus's life than the, than the other gospels do. Uh, Matthew is a very teaching-driven gospel. It's the one that has, like, the Sermon on the Mount and and other significant um, orations of Jesus. So I lean heavily in chronology on Luke and then Mark in particular. Um, so we're going to be doing this, this chronological study. It's going to be incorporating all four Gospels. We're not going to be limiting ourselves to one Gospel and working our way through it. We're going to be pulling from all four as we go along. So when we come to the feeding of the 5,000, for example, That's one miracle that appears in all four gospel accounts, so we'll appeal to all four gospel accounts. So the reason we call this the life of Jesus is because it's using all the material we have related to the life of Jesus. And finally, I want to share with you the objective or objectives of this class. For me, the reason we study the life of Jesus is to deepen our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. I know that sounds simple and it sounds um, elementary, but you can never, you can never appreciate Jesus too much. And so the whole objective, or the primary objective, I should say, is for us to just study Jesus's life and come away from it appreciating who he is, appreciating what he's done for us, and, and how he handled each situation he faced and so on. Uh, but I would also say that additional objectives of this class are, are to conduct a focused examination of each specific event in the life of Jesus, because those are events are recorded for a reason. God intentionally put all of these miracles and all of these interactions and all of these scenarios into the Gospels for a reason. And, and my objective is to pick them apart and understand what the benefit of this story is for us. As it pertains to the life of Jesus. And so that's another objective. And, and if, throughout this study, anytime I study the life of Jesus, the one thing that happens for me is I develop a greater appreciation for the humanity of Jesus. And I, and I want that to come out in this study. I, I want us to appreciate the fact that he put on flesh, that he came and experienced life in the confines of a human body, just like you and I, because when you really grasp the humanity of Jesus, it really can change your perspective of him. And one other thing I will do throughout this study is I will attempt to discredit alleged contradictions between the Gospels. You may not always hear about them, but people will contend that the Bible can't be true because the Gospels Gospels dispute one another. And so on occasions, including tonight, I will come across points in our study where where I will um, explain why people think there's a contradiction and why it's not really a contradiction, because we need to be able to defend the the Word of God as well, and so that will be a, a, a small portion of this study as well. And so that lays out the groundwork of what we're going to do. So if you're willing to stay with me for the length of time we'll spend in the life of Jesus... I intend for it to be beneficial for you. Now, I understand you can't, not everyone can commit to th- three or more quarters in a row of a study, because, well, some of you will volunteer to be teachers and things like that. But the good thing is, this, this is going to be recorded, and so if you want to continue the study when you're not able to be here, you can go back and, and listen to it. That was one luxury that the Wednesday morning class never had. So, with all that being said, let's begin a lengthy study of the life of Jesus and I hope it will be as beneficial for you as it is for me as the one uh, preparing for it. And what I want to do tonight is not an event. I know I just said a moment ago I want to be event focused, but there's one thing that starts out in the life of Jesus that I think has extreme value that we often overlook and that is simply the genealogy of Jesus. So I want to spend a moment this evening focused on Jesus's genealogy. You can find that genealogy recorded in Matthew chapter 1, the first 17 verses, or you can find it in Luke chapter 3, in the last uh, portion of that chapter, I believe it's verses 23 through 38. So you have two places in the Gospels where Jesus's family tree is recorded. You and I aren't as interested in family trees as the Jews of Jesus' day were. Now, there has become a, a uh, new interest in, in genealogy these days, now that we have uh, things like Ancestry.com and, and uh, what is it, 23andMe or something like that, you, you have these uh, entities, particularly on the internet, where you can go and create your family tree and do research into its branches and things like that, and it has gained some popularity, but it's nothing like the interest that the Jewish people had in genealogies. You see, to us, a genealogy can seem boring. It can seem um, tedious. It can seem like, uh, in, in particular in literature, a waste of space. Have you ever decided, hey, I'm going to read the Gospels, And you get to Matthew chapter 1. Now I'm going to read through the Gospels. And you start reading and you're like, nope, I'm skipping down. Let's see here. Oh, Jesus is born. Let's start there. Have you ever skipped a genealogy in your Bible reading? Raise your hand if you have. Yeah. That's how we feel. You know what the number one concern of Scripture readers is every Sunday? Whether or not I give them a verse with names. Because we don't know how to pronounce most of these names. And that's one reason why it's easy for us just to skip over it we don't necessarily see the value in a family tree recorded in the books of the Bible. But there is value there. God, who inspired the writing of Scripture, wouldn't just plop this in there for fun. There's got to be a purpose to the genealogy of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to talk about this evening. Now, in the Jewish mind, the genealogies mattered a great deal because it affected inheritance. The Jews used genealogies to prove their family heritage in order to receive their inheritance in the land. You can go back to Numbers chapter 26 and see how that works out. Your your inheritance as an Israelite was determined by your ability to trace your lineage. There's an interesting scenario that happens after the Babylonian captivity. You can read about it in Ezra chapter 2 in particular. And what happens is that some of the priests who returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, they could not show proof of their their family heritage within the tribe of Levi. They could not demonstrate that they were of the, the line that belonged in the priesthood. And as a result, they were considered unclean, and they were excluded from the priesthood. That's how valuable genealogy was to the Jewish people. If you claim some, uh, some right within the Jewish nation, but you could not prove it with your family tree, then you were going to lose that right, whether it was land or a role in the, the religious system. So genealogies mattered a great deal. In fact, you can get to to Herod the Great, the king of the Jews he called himself. Herod the Great is the guy uh, symbolically on the throne, because Rome is on the throne, but they're allowing Herod to be in charge of Palestine at the time of Jesus' birth. He's the guy that orders the the slaughter of all those baby boys two years and under when Jesus was born. So he is king, in a sense, in Palestine. But here's the thing. He claimed to be the king of the Jews, but he was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. He knew that, but he didn't want anybody else to know that. He also knew that genealogies mattered to the Jewish people. So you know what he did, according to, uh, I believe it's Eusebius? He destroyed genealogical records. He understood the importance of them, and that would affect his ability to reign over the Jews, so he systematically started destroying genealogical records in order to protect his claim to the throne. And he kind of rewrote history in his favor. I share that story. I share the story about the priests coming back from Babylonian captivity, all so that you can understand this mattered to these people. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that Jesus' genealogy is recorded here in two of the four gospel accounts. Now, both accounts consist of a list of names in keeping with the Jewish practice of ancestral records. And quite honestly, it's tedious reading, and it differs from the narrative style that we enjoy when we turn to the gospels. But it is significant. What I want to do first is I want to point out to you that there are differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. They are not exactly the same. Now, wouldn't you expect, if it's a family tree, that regardless of which author is pinning it and putting it in, in text, it would be exactly the same? But it's not. So let me show you a few of the differences that appear between Matthew and Luke's genealogies. The first difference is that Matthew traces Jesus' lineage back to Abraham, while Luke traces it back to Adam. Matthew makes a choice to stop with Abraham. But what you're going to discover as we work through um, the, uh, the study of the genealogies and eventually through the study of these Gospels, what you're going to discover is that Matthew has a specific focus. Matthew's chief objective is to prove that Jesus fulfills Jewish prophecy about the Messiah. And so his chief objective is not to show Jesus' entire lineage. He just wants to prove that Jesus came from David and that Jesus came from Abraham, because those are the two guys that matter the most. Luke, on the other hand, if you will recall the very first Four verses of Luke where Luke describes what he's doing in his gospel. He writes to this guy named Theophilus and he says, I wanted to put together an orderly account. Luke cares about details. Luke cares about getting everything right and putting it in order. So when Luke does his gospel and he records his genealogy, he doesn't want to stop at some point. He wants to get all the way back to the very first man God created. And part of the reason Luke wants to do that is because Luke doesn't just care about how Jesus fits in the theology of the Jewish religious system. He cares about how Jesus fits into the understanding of the world. While Matthew emphasizes Jesus' fulfillment of Jewish prophecy, Luke's going to emphasize Jesus' universal mission to save all people. So he wants to go back to the very first person, because everybody goes back to the very first person. So Matthew traces Jesus' lineage back to Abraham. Luke traces it back to Adam. That's one way they differ. Another thing you'll notice if you read both the Matthew account verses 1 through 17 of chapter one, Luke's account, chapter three, verse 23 through 38, I believe it is. When you read, you'll notice Matthew starts in the past with Abraham and works to the present to Jesus. Luke starts with Jesus in the present and works to Adam in the past. Matthew works past to present. Luke works present to past. Now, the way Matthew does it is the way you would find it in the Old Testament. In fact, it's interesting. You can can, uh, journey back to the Old Testament and you can look word for word at some of the genealogies present in the Old Testament and match them exactly to the Matthews in particular. If you go to the fourth chapter of Ruth, the last few verses of Ruth are a genealogy basically from Judah to David. And if you go read those few verses in Ruth chapter 4, they are almost exactly the same as the section of Matthew's genealogy from Judah to David. Matthew creates his genealogy to look and to feel just like a Jewish genealogy. Luke's not as concerned about that so he works from the present because his emphasis is on Jesus and he works to the to the past. So that's another way that they are different. A third way they are different is in the number of generations that are mentioned. Now this is one of those areas where you're like, hey wait this shouldn't differ. There should be the same number of people from Abraham to Jesus. But Matthew's list consists of 42 generations and notice this, if you, if you read, particularly in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 1, he has intentionally split them up into three sets of 14 generations. Meanwhile, Luke records 57 generations, and he has no special structure to it. He's just recording as they are. Now you can, you can think to yourself, oh, it's got to be because Matthew stopped at Abraham, Luke went all the way to Adam. But that's not the entirety of the situation. What's interesting about Matthew's gospel is that if you compare it to Old Testament genealogies, because much of Matthew's genealogy is actually from the Old Testament, but if you do a comparison of Matthew's genealogy, particularly from Solomon through uh, Jehoiakim, uh, no, Solomon through Jeconia, which is the last generation before Babylonian captivity, you can easily discover... That he skips some people he intentionally to get to that special number of 14 because it matters to Matthew he intentionally skips some generations he intentionally leaves out um, Joash Amaziah Azariah and Jehoiakim these are guys who he just said okay I'm gonna take the grandfather and the grandson instead of the father that, that's ultimately what he does and that's not wrong and Jewish genealogies. Because a Jewish genealogy isn't so much trying to give you, in every instance, father and son, but trying to make sure you can trace how this descendant came from that tribe, or that individual, or that, um, that uh, royal dynasty. Matthew has a very theologically driven genealogy here. Like I said, he wants to show that Jesus descended from David and Jesus descended from Abraham. That's his objective. If you look at the very first verse of Matthew chapter 1, Matthew says that's what his objective is. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the first verse of Matthew. He's laying his thesis out. Jesus came from Abraham and Jesus came from David. To help orchestrate that and to show this systematic theology involved in his genealogy, he intentionally limits his sections to 14 generations. 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to Babylonian captivity, 14 generations from Babylonian captivity to Jesus. That's how Matthew lays out his genealogy. And so he limits it to a special number. And he skips some generations to accomplish that. Luke, on the other hand, he's just recording names. He's just recording everybody he has on file. So Luke's not driven by the theology here like Matthew is. He's more driven by the literal or the... um, What's the term I was going to use? He's more driven by being accurate. But there is one other significant difference between the two. So... Here's what I need you to do. I need someone to open to Matthew chapter 1, and I need someone to open to Luke chapter 3. And I'm going to ask you a couple questions. So I'll tell you what, if you're on this, this side, go Matthew chapter 1. This side, go Luke chapter 3. Go to the genealogy, and I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Once you're there, if you're going to Matthew, look down to about verse 6. Who in the genealogy is identified as the son of David that leads to Jesus? In Matthew chapter 1. Say that again. No, excuse me. The immediate descendant of David. Solomon, verse 6. Now, those of you over in Luke chapter 3, You've got to remember, the son of David is going to be listed before David, but you'll find that son mentioned in verse 31. Who is the descendant of David that's going to lead to Jesus? Who? Nathan. Matthew said Solomon. Luke said Nathan. Doesn't that pose a problem? Because you can't have two fathers in in that situation. In fact, if you watch these two lists from this, the descendant of David, the immediate descendant of David. These two lists will diverge until they get to a guy named Shiltiel and Zerubbabel. You'll see Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, or Luke chapter 3, verse 27. They converge for those two generations, and then they, di- they diverge again with the descendant of Zerubbabel And they converge again at Joseph, the father of Jesus. Even the grandfather of Jesus is different in Matthew's gospel than in Luke's gospel. Now, how does that work? How is it possible for them to have different, for Jesus to have different grandfathers in these two gospels? That's the other way that we have a difference. Matthew's list follows David's son Solomon, Luke's list follows David's son Nathan, and we eventually get to Joseph. Now, I want to spend some time here, because this is one of those moments where people will claim that the Bible has a contradiction, because even the the family tree of Jesus differs in two Gospels. But let me share with you three possible explanations as to why there are differences of names between David and Jesus in all those generations. The first reason there may be differences has to do with the leveret marriage. In other words, it's possible that one of these Gospels is identifying Jesus' legal line of ancestry and the other is his biological line of ancestry. Now, do you remember, have, ever? I know I've done this in a sermon before, but it's been a while, what a leveret marriage is. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 25. And learn about this thing called a leveret marriage. Here's the way it works. If you are a a son and you have a brother, you die without having a child. Then it's your brother's duty to take your wife and produce a child for you. And when your brother takes your wife and has a child by her, that child is not your brother's, that child is yours, even though it's not your specific genetic makeup. It's all about inheritance, it's all about legal rights. And so there's this concept, there's, there's this uh, teaching, there's this expectation in Mosaic Law that you're going to help continue the, the uh, lineage of your brother if he is childless. What is worth noting is that in the genealogy of Jesus, whether you're talking about Matthew or you're talking about Luke, there is a Leveret marriage situation way back early in it. It has to do with Judah, the son of Jacob. And it's not a very good story. It's a scandalous biblical story. We'll talk about it more in a minute. But Judah had Uh, three sons. His oldest son married a woman, died childless. So Judah gave his second oldest son to the woman. He too died childless. Judah had a third son, but he came to the conclusion that this woman, whose name was Tamar, had to be cursing his family somehow, and he kind of refused to give her to his third child because he didn't want to lose another child. Well, she finally figured out what Judah was doing, and she knew where Judah was going, so she went to that town that Judah was headed to, and she set up camp outside the town like she was a prostitute. And Judah visited the prostitute that night. He got got her pregnant. He got his daughter-in-law pregnant not knowing it was his daughter-in-law, and when she proved to him what he had done, he then had children with her. That's in Jesus' genealogy. It, it's, all, it's a situation that's scandalous, but it's based on, a, on this leveret marriage policy that Judah refused to honor. You can also think in, in Jesus' life, He's going to encounter a situation where some scribes come up to him in Luke chapter twenty. I'm sorry, some Sadducees approached him in Luke chapter twenty, and they try to trick him with a question about levirate marriage. Uh, if a guy dies, well, excuse me, if a woman is married to seven different brothers because of this leveret marriage policy. First man dies, she goes to the second, she goes to the brother. He dies, she goes to the next brother, and so on. Has Seven, seven different men she's married to because of the Leverett marriage. and They're all brothers. Which one is she married to in, in the afterlife? That's the whole question they posed. You see, even in the days of Jesus, this policy was still in effect. Now, in the case of Jesus' genealogy, we've always already mentioned that, that this policy was part of what happened with Judah and Tamar. But it's been suggested That Jesus' grandfather differs in the two genealogies because that's where a leveret marriage occurred. An early church historian from the third century named Africanus suggested that when Heli, H E L I, when he died childless, you can read about him in Luke chapter 3 and verse um, 37, I believe, when he died, he died childless. And Jacob, who um, we read about in Matthew's gospel, had the same mother but a different father, and he married Heli's widow, and Joseph was born. Thus, Matthew's genealogy is based on Jacob, Jesus' biological grandfather, which I have those backwards. Matthew should be biological, Luke should be legal. And Luke's genealogy is based on Heli, Jesus' legal grandfather. That's one option. That maybe Heli, who you read about in Luke's gospel, and Jacob, who you read about in Matthew's gospel, both are identified as the grandfather of Jesus, that maybe they were brothers and we have a lever at marriage situation. Now, that's not an inspired answer. That's just some guy um, from the third century who um, suggested this is why there's a difference. There is another option as to why we have this different grandfather and different family tree up to David. And that is because Matthew may be recording a royal lineage while Luke is recording a biological lineage. See, in Matthew's gospel, he's focused on emphasizing Jesus' claim to the Davidic throne. And so when you look at the lineage that comes after David... It starts with Solomon and then Rehoboam. And what Matthew does is he identifies all the kings of Israel in that lineage. Uh, for, for up until the captivity, all the names are the individuals that sat on the throne of, of Judah. And so it's been argued that Matthew emphasized the royal lineage because Jesus is the rightful king of the Jews. He's a descendant of David, even though he may not be a descendant of the royal lineage, that's the one that Matthew's choosing to follow to argue for his place in David's throne as the Messiah. Meanwhile, Luke over there isn't focused on the royal lineage. He's focused on the biological lineage, and so he starts with Nathan way back there after David and stays with that line, even though those aren't the ones who were the king on the throne. They are the biological line. So the argument is That's possible Matthew focuses on the royal lineage, the the one that would link Jesus to the throne of David, while Luke focuses on on Jesus' biological lineage, the actual people who genetically he shared, shared a commonality with. So that's the second option. There is one last option. And that is that Matthew presents Joseph's family tree And Luke presents Mary's family tree. This is probably the most popular explanation for the difference in names that appear between Luke and and Matthew. And it has some appeal to it for this one single factor. In Luke's gospel, when you read about the birth of Jesus, it's all from the vantage point of Mary. In Matthew's gospel, when you read about the birth of Jesus, It's all from the vantage point of Joseph. And so it's argued that because Joseph is the central character in the birth of Jesus in Matthew, that the family tree there must be his. And since Mary is the central character in the birth of Jesus in Luke, the family tree there is hers. Now, it was not common to produce the family tree of a female. But then again, it wasn't common to do it in backwards order either, starting with the present and working to the past. And so, we honestly don't know why there are differences. We don't know the correct answer, but some of these are appealing answers. And they can, regardless of which one may be correct, and if there's even one that we haven't thought of yet, they do give an explanation as to why there are differences. A justifiable, credible explanation as to why there are differences between these Gospels. We will not know why the genealogies are different until we get to heaven. So put that away in your questions for God when you get to heaven. Right up there with why did he make mosquitoes? That's my first question for him. Because there's no function that a mosquito offers that can't be taken care of by another creature, in my opinion. Somebody, uh, Glenn Ramsey is going to correct me later. I'm sure. So that takes us through the the differences between these two genealogies. We have to acknowledge them because you would expect them to be the same, but there could be some great reasons why they are different. Now now that we've covered the differences, why do we have the genealogies? Why do we need them? Why did God see fit to put them in the, the Gospels? Why are they preserved? Well, the first and most obvious reason is because Jesus' genealogy reveals how he fulfilled Messianic prophecy. Particularly when we look at Matthew's Gospel, but both Gospels do this. It focuses on three things. Both Matthew and Luke's genealogies identify Jesus as the seed of Abraham. Both genealogies take us to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, God told Abram, "In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he repeated that statement in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18, saying, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Jesus is identified in the Old Testament as the blessing for all the nations. And he is that because he is the Savior of the world. And both genealogies recount the fact that Jesus descended from Abraham, placing him in the context of this messianic prophecy. You'll also notice that both genealogies identify Jesus as a descendant of Judah. Judah's mentioned in both lists. There's no controversy about that. And when Jacob blessed Judah back in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, he said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff From between his feet. Later, Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 31, well, Isaiah prophesied about the tribe of Judah, saying, The surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Whether you're looking at Jacob's blessing in Genesis 49 and verse 10, which says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, or you're looking at Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 37 and verse 31, where there the, the, the root of Judah will t- bear fruit and, and grow upward. Both are referring to this, the Messiah coming from that particular tribe. Both of these statements are taken as indicators that the Messiah would descend from Judah. And both genealogies recount the fact that Jesus was a Judite. And let's not forget that Jesus is called in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5 the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And thirdly, both genealogies identify Jesus as an heir to the throne of David, as we've talked about at length. In one of Scripture's most popular Messianic prophecies, Isaiah associated the Messiah with David. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, where he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Jeremiah also made the connection between the Messiah and David when he wrote in Jeremiah chapter 23, and verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Both genealogies connect Jesus with David and indicate that he was, in fact, a descendant of the king and an heir to the throne that God set up through David. So whether you're looking at Jesus' biological line or his legal line or you're looking at at his uh, ancestry through Joseph or Mary, or whatever explanation you want to go with between these two uh, different genealogies, the one thing you'll notice is that God, in his omniscience, made sure that Jesus' genealogy fulfilled all messianic prophecies. And that means that Jesus' genealogy is provided so that there will be no doubt that he meets the qualifications of a Messiah based on the prophetic proclamations that were presented in the Old Testament. And so we can be confident that the son of Joseph and Mary was, in fact, the son of God. That's the chief reason we have the genealogies. They may be boring to us, but they're there because they prove messianic prophecy. They show us that Jesus fulfilled what was said about him in the Old Testament that's not the only reason I believe Jesus's genealogy is preserved for us. I believe it's also preserved because it validates the legitimacy of Jesus's birth. Go to Luke chapter 3 real quick and look at verse 23. There is a parenthetical statement in the midst of this genealogy in Luke chapter 3 and verse 23 that I think says a lot about the mindset of Jesus' birth at that time. So Luke chapter 3, verse 23 says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, parentheses, as was supposed of Joseph. Now, we'll get to the birth in a couple of weeks. But think about this, as was supposed language as most of you know Joseph and Mary had not done anything to conceive Jesus Jesus is a divinely conceived but if somebody walked in the doors of this church building today and told us some some teenage girl walked in here and said, yes, the Holy Spirit impregnated me. Would we believe her? Imagine the controversy that Mary faces as her belly enlarges. And everybody knows it ain't Joseph. See, due to the unique nature of Jesus' birth, there were questions about its legitimacy. So as Matthew pins his gospel, it appears that he intentionally set about the task of not only proving Jesus' genealogical link to David and Abraham, but also proving that the suspiciousness of his birth is not entirely unique. If you read Matthew's gospel, there is something else that makes it different than Luke's. The fact that five women are mentioned in his gospel makes it different. The first four women mentioned in in Matthew's gospel are Tamar in verse 3, Rahab in verse 5, Ruth in verse 5, and Bathsheba in verse 6, though she's identified not by her name, but as the wife of Uriah. Now, It's interesting because not every significant female in the lineage of Jesus is mentioned. There's no mention of Sarah, Abraham's wife. There's no mention of Rebekah, Jacob's wife. There's no mention of Leah, which is a very special name. There's no mention of Leah, which is Judah's mother. But these four women, they get mentioned. What do they have in common? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. What do they have in common? They all share suspicions of illegitimacy surrounding their sexual activity and their childbearing. Let me explain what I mean. In the case of Tamar and Bathsheba, an illicit relationship led to the birth of a child that progressed the Messianic line. In the case of Rahab and Ruth, a cross-cultural marriage led to the birth of a child that advanced the lineage of the Christ. The point is that the children of these four women were not without controversy, and yet they were accepted as legitimate descendants in this line. This is important because the fifth woman mentioned in Matthew's genealogy is Mary, of whom Jesus was born in verse 16. And like her predecessors, the circumstances surrounding the conception of her child are suspicious and controversial. So it seems that what Matthew may be doing by including Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba is demonstrating that Jesus' birth is not the first controversial birth in his family. It's as though Matthew is defending the legitimacy of Jesus' birth by pointing out that key members of the Messianic genealogy were haunted by similar suspicions. That's the way one author put it. And if those other births were deemed legitimate, Rahab was the great-great grandmother of David, Ruth was the uh, great-grandmother of David, Bathsheba was the mother of the king of Israel, Solomon. If If uh, if the births of their children were deemed legitimate, then Jesus' birth should be legitimized as well. It seems that Matthew is concerned with disproving or discrediting the naysayers that, that are claiming at that time that Jesus can't be the Messiah because of how he was born. And he's saying, look at the lineage of the Messiah. There were other controversies that predated him. And you have no problem accepting David, although his great-grandmother was a Moabite, and his great-great-grandmother was a harlot in Jericho. And you have no problem accepting Solomon as this wealthy, wise king, even though his mother had an adulterous affair with his father. It's as though Matthew is trying to contend based on the fact that there were other suspicious childbirths prior to this, that there shouldn't be any suspicions about Jesus'. Another thing to consider as we, as we examine why we have these genealogies is the fact that Jesus' genealogy reminds us that he was human. The fact that Jesus has a genealogy, one, one author said this, the genealogy is recorded the fact that it's recorded at all, shows Jesus to be a real man, not a demigod like those in Greek and Roman mythology. It's, it sets him apart from the so-called deities of the world around them. It shows that he was, in fact, God in the flesh, that he was truly human. Because Jesus Jesus had DNA. Jesus had a genetic code and a genetic makeup about him. Jesus had fingerprints. Jesus had a physical identity linked to his ancestors. He had a blood type. I think we lose that sometimes because we are so wrapped up in the Jesus is God category, that we forget that he was entirely human as well. He would get fatigued. He would get hungry. We don't have it recorded, but he had the capability of getting sick because he was human. And obviously he was capable of dying because he was human you got to think about what Philippians chapter 2 says. When, when we're called to have the same mind as Jesus, it appeals to Jesus because though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. In human form. The genealogy causes us at the start of our reading of Jesus's life to put it in perspective that he is human. That he entered the world the same way you and I entered the world. That he had a human mother, a human father, human grandparents, human aunts and uncles. He existed in the context of a family just like you and I did, you and I do. So Jesus's genealogy is preserved because it reminds us that he was human, and finally it's preserved because it teaches us that one's past does not determine his or her future. You know, I mentioned all those women earlier that are identified in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. It's fascinating to me because there are some tremendous biblical, spiritual heroes in the family tree of Jesus. He has an all-star cast of heroes in his family tree. From the Hebrew forefathers like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to uh, renowned Israelite kings like David and Hezekiah and Josiah. He's got some amazing, heroic ancestors but he's also got some scandalous stories in his family's tree. So we mentioned Tamar. I told you a little bit about her story. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3, Jesus descended from Judah through his son Perez, whom he had with Tamar. If you go back to Genesis chapter 38, it's one of those chapters we just kind of skip over in our teaching Of the book of Genesis because it's a very uncomfortable story. Tamar portrayed a prostitute in order to coerce her father-in-law Judah to sleep with her and thereby produce an offspring for her. The reason she orchestrated this immoral episode is because Judah was refusing to allow her to marry his youngest son in keeping with the practice of leveret marriage. And such a salacious story of sexual immorality seems unnecessary in the genealogy of Jesus if the sole purpose of the genealogy is simply to trace his ancestry. Why include that if all you want to do is identify who Jesus came from? The next woman is Rahab. You can read her story particularly in Joshua chapter 2. She was a Canaanite prostitute. And although she's esteemed as a hero of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, Her name is is synonymous with her profession. And so her inclusion is not only unnecessary, but also unwanted by the average Jew who would not want the public to be reminded of her scandalous occupation. And then there's Ruth. What's wrong with Ruth? This is this beautiful woman who so commits herself to her mother-in-law that she gives up her own life. There can't be anything wrong with Ruth, right? Well, Ruth did nothing quite as scandalous as the other women in the list, but Ruth was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite, which meant that all of her descendants were not biologically of pure Hebrew blood. They were legally, because the father's genealogy mattered the most, but biologically, they were mixed. Some Jews would not want her publicly mentioned in their family tree because it would be a reminder of her non-Israelite DNA. And then we get to Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. That's so fascinating. She's not named by her proper name. She's identified in the genealogy as the wife of Uriah. The fact that Uriah's name is dropped here brings to mind the adulterous affair with David and David's subsequent murderous cover-up operation, both of which are recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Although Jesus' relationship to David must be emphasized genealogically, it hardly seems necessary to reference the sexual sin of the man after God's own heart. It doesn't seem like it is essential to understanding Jesus' connection to David to bring up the worst moment in David's life. In the midst of the genealogy. So when you look at these four women who get mentioned in the genealogy, all of them carry with their story some element of scandal. And Jesus's genealogy includes references to these embarrassing relationships without qualification and without hesitation. And their identification within the context of Jesus's family tree indicates that even Jesus' family wasn't perfect. Take some comfort in that. Your family doesn't have to be perfect because the Son of God's family was not perfect. This may be an insignificant observation in the grand scheme of things, but I think it's, it, shows, it shows that Jesus was not defined by his heritage. And therefore, we don't have to be defined by ours either. And along those lines, I'm reminded of Paul's presentation of his heritage in Philippians chapter 3, where he said, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He lists his resume. But then he says, whatever he counted as gain." from such a heritage, was loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, his relationship with Christ was far more important than his heritage. So a few verses later, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, Paul said that he was forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, so that he could press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God In Christ Jesus. In other words, he indicated that his future reward was far more important than his past mistakes. And then he concluded by instructing those who are mature to think the same way. As we conclude out this study tonight of a a section of the Gospels that we may feel is insignificant. I want us to be reminded that if you are in Christ, it's not your past that matters. Because your future is glorious. Therefore, there's no reason to dwell in your past. Jesus' family's past was pretty ugly. But as we'll find out, Jesus is the one who made the future extraordinarily bright. I look forward to this study with you, and I hope you look forward to it as well. Next week, we'll begin investigating Jesus' birth, but particularly doing it by looking at the announcements to Joseph and Mary in particular, and understanding how this affected them to learn that they're going to be the parents of the Son of God. Let's close out with a word of prayer this evening. God in heaven, we are humbled to come before you this evening and to study your word. Lord, we are about to embark on a study of the life of your son, and I ask for your blessings on me as the teacher to uh, do justice to this material and to his life, and help us each week to come in here ready to learn more about him, to appreciate him more than we did before. Lord, thank you for sending him. We're thankful that he was willing to come and that he was willing to endure, and that he was willing to surrender, and that he was willing to humble himself. And may we never take for granted his sacrifice, and may we honor him with the way that we live. We love you, Lord, and it is through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.